This is Asha Voices. I'm JD Gray. In 2022, we brought you a series of conversations about CSD professionals working around the world. In this short series, developed with Ash's International Issues Board and Ash's Special Interest Group 17 on Global Issues and Communication Disorders, we discuss some of the differences in how countries address CSD in healthcare, how Americans might approach working internationally, and the interesting lives of our guests. Today, as we revisit the first of these episodes, we're headed to the Caribbean. Amanda Piper is one of just a few audiologists in her home country of Trinidad and Tobago, and on this episode of Asha Voices, she shares her story and work. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's updated tool, Cultural Competence Check-Ins. Find opportunities for reflection and growth with these one-sheet resources at on.asha.org cc. Trinidad and Tobago are two islands that form one nation. Found in the Caribbean, the country is home to over a million people. Amanda Piper is a clinical audiologist working at the Trinidad and Tobago Association for the Hearing Impaired. She specializes in pediatrics. When she began working in her home nation, Amanda says the need was huge. She knew it would be. Amanda's remarkable story highlights some of the differences between working in the U.S. and other countries around the world. Inspired by a personal connection, Amanda traveled to the U.S. to study and become an audiologist. And surprisingly, she made that decision without ever having received a hearing test of her own. That's absolutely true. I had never seen an audiologist in practice. I never shadowed anyone, never observed one minute of audiology practice. And so a lot of people, including my professors at university, were baffled as to how was I so determined and resolute that this is the profession that I wanted to pursue. Well, and that's what I want to ask you as well, is what drew you to audiology? Yeah, so my now brother-in-law is deaf in both ears. He has profound sensory neural hearing loss. He lost his hearing when he was a little over one year old, and that was due to bacterial meningitis. Now, at the time in Trinidad and Tobago, we had no audiologists in practice whatsoever. And so even the diagnosis of hearing loss was difficult challenging to to validate and identify and so his mom noted that you know after the the infection with the meningitis the few words that he had started to dwindle he was no longer as vocal not really babbling as much and importantly he was non-responsive to his name fast forward many years he became fluent in sign language and attended one of the local schools for the deaf. And when I got to know my husband and his family, I became keenly aware of the struggles that they experienced because there were no audiologists to consult with, to guide them, to counsel, to even you know, shed light on to move forward in terms of support and intervention for a child with hearing loss. This is now 2008 when my husband and I were courting at the time. So decades later, there are now two audiologists in Trinidad and none of them serve children. And at that point, I said, okay, the need is massive and I knew I always wanted to pursue something in the field of healthcare, but in a serving profession. And I just followed my my grandmother's advice. She said, if you want to have purpose and fulfillment in this life, meet a need. 
meet a need. And so this was a, a glaring need in front of me and I just, I dove right in um, and I never looked back since then. Tell me a little bit about the journey you took to become an audiologist. Sure. So after deciding that I wanted to pursue audiology, I was afforded a very generous scholarship to the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, where I did my bachelor's degree in communication sciences and disorders. That was a phenomenal four years. It was the first time that I traveled to the United States and the first time I lived anywhere outside of Trinidad and Tobago. But I really embraced the culture in the U.S. and was so humbled and grateful for the opportunity and the privilege to learn. I'm still a lifelong learner. And I had professors there who believed in my very, very grand dreams and aspirations, and they encouraged me a thousand percent. So when I got to the fourth year of university, you know, they're asking me, well, what graduate schools are you applying to? And and they just said, go for the best, <laughs> go for the highest, <laughs> go for the most selective, because you need a really solid foundation. Um, you are going to be, you know, one of a few audiologists. You're not going to have the support of a large team of professionals. And so you need to have a really concrete, solid education to support you moving forward. I was successful in getting admittance to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville became my second home for another four years. And Besides loving the country music, I (laughs) (laughs) became fascinated by just the structure, the how well organized the framework of audiology looked in the US. I found about there are several different hospitals on the campus, a, a VA hospital, a pediatric hospital cancer hospital and so we were able to have clinical rotations in all those different facilities ENT clinics I mean you name it and so I had a wide and diverse array of of clinical experiences and that really stretched my viewpoint and my appreciation for all that audiology was and I saw the gold standard you know, I saw that ivory tower of this is best practice in audiology. This is the ideal. This is what we aim for in terms of early identification of children with hearing loss, early intervention, working well with an interdisciplinary team, being able to counsel, support parents, providing resources for them. All that's involved in the management of children with hearing loss. I feel like I went into Vanderbilt with an empty tank and I was filled to the brim, like overflowing. <laughs> I was so enthusiastic to return home and just pour out knowledge and you know, pour out all that had been dispensed during my time there. Before Amanda could return home, she would need to complete an externship. I imagined how I would feel if, on the horizon, I was to be one of just a few audiologists in my country. I thought I might feel pressure, and I asked Amanda about that. It was when I started my externship program. This was at Hearts for Hearing at Oklahoma City. 
it was when I started working full time that I realized when you start seeing patients as a clinician, as a professional, you build relationships with these families and they depend on you. Man, it's, that's when I think the reality of the situation, I suppose, and the pressure really started to unfold for me that I was going to be the only source of knowledge, inspiration, encouragement, and I felt like I had to be everything to all men. I leaned on my supervisors at Hearts for Hearing to be able to independently navigate difficult patient situations, difficult decisions, regrets, you know, all the things that come along with having a large patient caseload. And they allowed me that flexibility and that freedom to really sort of adopt certain patients and their situations and and walk alongside them during this journey of hearing loss. And that prepared me a lot because to see a child, you know, you do a diagnostic ABR on a child and then you walk alongside that family for an entire year. I remember one, one infant that I did the ABR, well, with my supervisor, of course, profound sensory neural hearing loss. I was with them for the counseling with mom crying and me trying to not be too emotional and, you know, just that whole experience. And then with the counseling for hearing aids and then subsequently cochlear implant technology and the whole workup with the ENT physicians for cochlear implantation. And then I was intimately a part of all these speech therapy sessions. Well, not all, but most of them. Um, And so to watch this child just blossom because we were able to detect hearing loss early. And, you know, I just remember mom towards the end of my year, she looked at me, she, she said, you have been here through high and low, thick and thin, the laughs, the cries. She's like, I'm really going to miss you. <laughs> um, and so it, it was precious just to watch a child develop and to watch the parents, the families develop as well in their confidence and their, their dreams for their children, realizing that, you know, it's not the end of the world if a child has hearing loss. There is so much hope and there's so much that can be done once we have the right support and timely intervention. We're taking a quick break. And when we come back, Amanda tells us what happened when she returned to Trinidad and Tobago. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's updated tool, Cultural Competence Check-Ins. Cultural competence, cultural humility, and cultural responsiveness require an ongoing commitment. Invest in yourself and your clients when you use these one-page resources. Designed to help you reflect and grow, find all four cultural competence check-ins at on.asha.org cc. Amanda Piper. Let me tell you, when I returned to Trinidad and Tobago, I... Um, quickly realized that I was no longer in the U.S. (laughs) Rather than identifying infants, babies, and toddlers, most of the children that I was seeing at the time, they were four, five, six, seven years old, much, much older. So past 
preschool into primary school age, and these children were severely language delayed. Little to no reading skills, lots of questions and just concerns on the parts of the parents as to what's happening with their child. Is it autism? Is it hearing loss? Is it a developmental delay? Is it this, that? So I found myself being thrust into that scenario with much older children. And at that point, we are past, you know, that critical, crucial window, that birth to three sensitive time period where the children would benefit from timely intervention so that they thrive later on. So at, at five, six years old, a lot of these children, they had little to no spoken language, but they have a moderate hearing loss, right? So a, a moderate hearing loss, we can, we can amplify and provide good, loud, clear sound to this child, but they were identified so late that they had little to no language, spoken language, and then the only option that the parents saw was reasonable at that time was to just immerse them in sign language and send them to the school for the deaf. So in our local schools for the deaf, there are lots of children with, there are children who are profoundly deaf, but lots of children with mild and moderate to severe hearing loss just because they were late identified and they didn't have that opportunity to learn to listen and talk from an early age because it wasn't identified at an early age. Where were you working when you returned to Trinidad and Tobago? I primarily have been planted at the Trinidad and Tobago Association for the Hearing Impaired. It's a non-profit, non-governmental organization. And the, the goal of this organization really is to be the heartbeat for audiology in the nation. It was founded and started by parents of children who are deaf of hard of hearing, and as well as adults and other professionals um, interested in, in hearing loss. So there's a lot of interest in the association, but still paucity of audiologists, right? So at any point in time, there was perhaps one audiologist or no audiologist at all, just because there are so few qualified professionals. Coming back to work for the Association for the Hearing Impaired, I found that my plate was quickly full <laughs> and um, my cup was running over. Tell me a bit about that. <laughs> I remembered one of the first few patients that I saw. This was a mummy of a child with Down syndrome. And she looked me straight in the eye. She said, I have been waiting almost 10 months for this appointment. I've been waiting 10 months to see you. Because that's how long the waiting list was. That's how many children needed to be seen at that particular time. When I returned, it was like the floodgates were opened. Pediatricians, ENTs, developmental specialists, psychologists, schools, everyone was just referring children. <laughs> so I was busy. I was working really, really long Long days, weekends, evenings, early mornings. But it was so worth it because I had a lot of energy and enthusiasm when I returned home. So 
I was able to direct it productively towards my patients. But you know, you can't keep up that momentum, right? <laughs> so after about, um, and in the middle of that, I got married. So <laughs> within my my second year of marriage, it just became apparent that um, I needed to, to balance things out a bit so I wouldn't get burnt out. And what that meant was I could not do everything, right? As much as I wanted to, I could not see every patient. I started to train other professionals. So right now at the Trinantabig Association for the Hearing Impaired, we have a nursing professional. She does hearing screenings for the babies, right? You don't need an audiologist to do a hearing screening. So the babies come to this nursing professional, and if they do not pass the hearing screening after the second attempt, then they come to see me. That's helped a lot in terms of filtering the patients. So the patients that come to see me really are the ones that need a full diagnostic evaluation. So she facilitated screenings for the babies, and recently we um, began screening for all the children too because the government was really pushing for hearing and vision screenings prior to entry into primary school. There was a big surge in children age four and five needing to have a hearing evaluation. And rather than have them all come to see the audiologist, we put in a screening program for those children. The screening helps tremendously in terms of cutting down the caseload for the audiologist. In addition, I work with a team of professionals, so it's it's not a, a one-handed endeavor. There's a speech-language pathologist in the team, as well as two technicians who are specialized in making air molds. So we have our own in-house air mold lab, and we get you know, the, the medical grade silicone from Germany and we get really high high quality materials that we utilize for making air molds on site. We have a hearing aid technician who I pretty much, like I could kiss her feet because <laughs> she does surgery on hearing aids and just resurrects them and brings them back to life just when children need the hearing aids for their exams, you know? So it's... um. It's, it's just great that we could all work together as a team to help support the families that we serve. Amanda shared the story of one seven-year-old who stood out to her during the time when her workload was particularly heavy. For confidentiality reasons, she calls him Bobby. Little Bobby was full of personality and energy and very vocal but couldn't understand a word that Bobby was saying. <laughs> His speech was really unclear, lots of articulation errors. I saw him for a diagnostic hearing test and the mom in giving me the case history, we spoke at length because she said every label that is out there, <laughs> they put on this child. He'd seen a host of professionals. He was labeled as having a reading disability, having a learning disability, receptive and expressive language delay, possible and likely ADHD, and the list goes on. In addition to which, he had repeated two grades in primary school. So he was quite behind for his age in terms of his academic progress. 
mom came to me really feeling like she was about to give up because at this point in time, she had done almost two years of speech language therapy, had done as much intervention as she thought was needed following all the professional's advice, but yet her child was still struggling. Here we are doing a hearing test at seven years old, and he was so cooperative and well-mannered, and I was able to get a lot of information. And it discussing the results with mom, everything just clicked to her. So Bobby, after all the various tests, he was diagnosed with a mild low-frequency hearing loss, steeply sloping to a moderate to severe high-frequency loss. Mom, she, she didn't cry, but she was on the verge of tears because she said, you know, I... I, w- I, I should have been able to detect this, but she said, you know, every time I call his name or I would ask him, he, he would respond. There, there wasn't a, a point in time where he was just unresponsive, you know, so she's like, surely he can hear. I mean, surely, you know, I just asked him to bring me the TV remote, he brought it, right? And so they were really wondering if it was something cognitive and, you know, regarding processing, but really... He had a significant hearing loss in both ears. I think what was heartbreaking to me was he had seen all these professionals and at no point in time was mom directed to consult with an audiologist for a hearing evaluation. That was the heartbreaking thing, that he was coming to see me last after seeing everybody else. And so the last professional that mom is seeing is the audiologist. You know, I bring that up because my presence here, being back in Trinidad, I want to not just serve, but to bring knowledge and awareness and just open blind eyes that if there are concerns for speech and language development, if there are concerns for a child's development overall, a child with special needs, whether they have cerebral palsy, a genetic syndrome, any of these other things. It's so important to check their hearing as part of the holistic assessment of that child. It's so important. So I have been on a campaign (laughs) to reach out to meet with, consult with, send letters, phone calls, emails, to pediatricians because they're the first point of contact for these children. Pediatricians, ENT physicians, um, even teachers sensitizing them. The more that these are the professionals, the more that they know, the more knowledge they have, they can do the appropriate referrals. And at this point in time, July 2022, I am like almost best friends with all these speech therapists. <laughs> And Tobago. They know me by by name, first name. A couple of them probably have me on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> so I am well plugged into the landscape. And I think that has helped tremendously. So now I'm diagnosing children at their one year old, their year and a half, two years old. 
we still don't have a universal newborn hearing screening program in Trinidad. So we're not able to identify them, you know, at three and six months, like in the States, but it's still a huge improvement. I remember the day that I was able to fit hearing aids on a nine-month-old baby. Like the entire staff was just shocked. Like the ML technicians, they had never seen hearing aids on a child that little. It was just a new thing, even for the association, the clinic, to be able to provide amplification on an infant. It makes me think, too, about what you were saying about when you were studying at Vanderbilt. And not only have you, it sounds, had to rely on a large breadth of knowledge of audiology, but also of other skills to build those relationships, to, to lay the tracks and create a foundation for good hearing health in the future for the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had to learn the the etiquette and the jargon to be able to communicate with pediatricians, you know, to speak their language. <laughs> and the same thing with the speech language therapists, the same thing with the psychologists. And so um, I feel like I've been pushing the boundaries of the scope of audiology. <laughs> And oftentimes, even though I would diagnose a child with hearing loss, you know, it, it, it doesn't stop with hearing aids. We encourage that the children pursue speech language therapy as well as, you know, the types of therapy that they may need given their development and also additional supports in school, et cetera, et cetera. But the parents, they're usually like, all of that, that's necessary. But he had the hearing aids, he could hear now. I mean, the speech wouldn't pick up on its own. You know, so then I become an advocate for the speech therapist and I talk about like the role of the speech therapist and how important they are and the fact that, you know, little Bobby is so far behind the other children in his class that there's a gap. And the role of the speech therapist really is to close that gap. We need to accelerate the process of language learning so that little Bobby can learn to listen and talk and comprehend as as well as his, his peers. And so it's not to say that, you know, they're not going to make it otherwise, but these supports help them so much and help them to get to where they need to be faster without all that heartache and all that burden and frustration. You have the experience of working in the U.S. And since this podcast has a larger U.S. listenership, is there anything that you might be able to share as far as differences in audiology between the two countries that you have experience working in? If I were to pinpoint one thing, I would say that, again, in the context of young children, in the States, when we would fit hearing aids for the first time, it was such a fun experience (laughs) because the children, they would want like bright blue hearing aids with a green air hook and like super red air moles, like Superman. They just had fun with it. And we encourage that. We allow them to take ownership of the devices that belong to them, let them choose the colors. And we would give out, you know, little books and materials on, you know, Leo gets hearing aids for the first time. And we just made it an experience where they would bond with the devices. Coming to Trinidad, and this is so cultural, 
but more than often, I feel like probably a hundred times for the month, I get the question, do y'all have any of the invisible hearing aids? You know, the ones that go all the way in the air that nobody can see. So we get that question so many times because there's a pervasive stigma attached to anybody that wears hearing aids. We very much in Trinidad and Tobago, sadly, still use the term deaf and dumb. There are a lot of assumptions that are made with these children. And the sentiment that I observe is that the parents are very self-conscious about it. Very, very self-conscious. So it's hard sometimes for parents to really accept what it means to have a child with hearing loss and then to share that with the world. And so the little ones, when we fit them with hearing aids, they want brown hearing aids, skin tone, flesh tone, something that could be masked in their hair. They want clear air molds. They don't want to bring attention to the devices, which is almost in stark contrast with my experience in these states. I understand uh, all the hearing aids are free to the children. Is that true? They are. They are. It's not wonderful. <laughs> so I will say that's that's probably the greatest joy in that there are no financial barriers to the provision of hearing technology to children and adults in Trinidad and Tobago. Our government has honestly and sincerely prioritize the needs of the deaf and the hard of hearing community. And so the Trinidad and Tobago Association for the Hearing Impaired, we receive specific grants from the local government of Trinidad and Tobago to provide hearing aids free of charge once a patient is a citizen of the country. In that regard, you know, we are fitting hundreds of hearing aids, hundreds, plural. <laughs> in these states, you know, when someone comes in and hearing loss is identified, at that point, you know, you'd fill out an order form, you'd place an order with the company, you'd wait maybe a week or two for it to be shipped and then program. Nope, we have stocks and stocks and stocks and stocks of hearing aids because the volume of patients that we serve is huge and it's a free program so we we have to have ready access to the technology and i will tell you it's not any cheap over-the-counter PSAP devices these are and i'm not going to call any brands but premium like 18 channel digital pediatric hearing aids i'll just leave it at that really 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 high quality as of this year we have rechargeable devices like we're right on the cusp of keeping up with with the technology that's available to these children so they are not lacking at all in terms of access to the technology and definitely we're trying to serve all patients in a timely manner as, as early as we can. And so it's really up to the families to accept the, the diagnosis, to accept the guidance and the counseling, and to move forward. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other 
reflections from your career or things that you're looking forward to in the future as far as audiology in your country in Trinidad and Tobago? Yeah, at this point in time, there are no local audiology programs in the Caribbean. So if a young person is interested in pursuing audiology and they're from any of the islands, they have to go to either the US, Canada, the UK to get degree, doctorate, master's, whatever the appropriate certification is. And I I will admit, because I, I walked that path, I was on that road. When you are in these very auspicious programs and developed countries, you are tempted to stay. (laughs) So I know a few who they were incredibly enthusiastic about pursuing audiology and coming back to Trinidad to serve. You know, they've they've gone on to get their their doctorates in audiology, but they have remained abroad um, because there are so many, you know, just rich and lucrative opportunities out there. Um, and I don't get them wrong because, you know, the opportunity to work with like a cochlear implant company, for example, or to work at an esteemed national pediatric hospital. I mean, these are really invaluable opportunities. So my hope is that they'll get that experience and at some point in time, book a plane ticket to come back home to Trinidad <laughs> and not... Um, not stay away for too long. That's really been on my heart that we won't have a brain drain of our brightest and best of professionals. And did I understand you to say though that in the Caribbean you're working to collaborate to create a, were you saying a training program? Was that some sort of school? Did I understand? Did I misunderstand? I may have misunderstood. You, you you probably have some foresight into my deep dreams. <laughs> it it would be it would be wonderful. At this point in time we have the University of Trinidad and Tobago, the University of the West Indies, the University of the Southern Caribbean, and a few other tertiary education institutions in Trinidad. The University of the West Indies at the St. Augustine campus. They have campuses as well in Jamaica and Barbados, but the campus in Trinidad, they've recently launched a master's in speech language pathology. And that came to fruition because we have probably about 25 speech language therapists on the island and a couple of them have their PhDs. And so they were instrumental in crafting and bringing this program to life. It can happen in the field of audiology, but we need lots more professionals because there's no way that that there's so much needed on the clinical side of things to be able to run an academic program requires a lot of human resources and we just don't have that quite yet. I wanna thank you so much for your time today and for your openness and for sharing your story. Thank you so much. It was my great pleasure. Really, really an honor. Thank you for having me. You can listen to the second episode in this series about CSD professionals working around the world. Developed with ASHA's International Issues Board and ASHA's Special Interest Group 17, find the episode in the podcast archive at on.asha.org slash podcast. 
Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asha Leader magazine. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's Cultural Competence Check-Ins, a resource designed to help you reflect and grow. Continue increasing your cultural competence, humility, and responsiveness. Learn more at on.asha.org cc. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices.